Church, take your Bible and join me in Luke chapter 12 and verse 35. It's a joy to be continuing in our study of the gospel according to Luke. This morning our passage is Luke chapter 12, verses 35 to 48. Luke chapter 12, verses 35 to 48. Jesus' words to the disciples. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he knocks or when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions but if that, master, if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Thus far the reading of God's word. Now let's turn our hearts to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help today. Heavenly Father, we do bow our hearts before you, the blessed, most high God. Lord, we come asking for your help as we break open your word. We pray that you would do a work in our hearts. Lord, that even now you would do a preparatory work within us and give us eyes to see and ears that would hear what the Spirit would speak to the church. Lord, you have delivered your people from the powers of darkness, from the lion's den, from the fiery furnace, from all of the tribulations of life. You've brought us into the kingdom and washed us and clothed us and seated us at your table and feasted us with the goodness of your house. What shall we render to you for all of your goodness to us? Lord, we will lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of our Lord. We will pay our vows to you in the presence of all your people. And God, we want you to change us. 
Lord, we desire to be molded into the image of your Son. And we're grateful today because we have your word in front of us. And it is your word which changes your people. And so we come asking that you would pour out now your Holy Spirit upon us. Lord, that the truth of your testimonies would be illuminated to our hearts, that we might live in you and uh, you and us. God, that through the hearing of your word, we would see the radiance of Christ until that day dawns, when he will return, when the morning star rises in our hearts. God, use this word to prepare us now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God's people, as we have been seeing in recent weeks, are those who have a different manner of life than those who are in the world. Our whole orientation to life is different. Our treasure is in heaven because that is where our hearts are. Our interests are in the things of God. Our desire is for the glory of Christ's name because he is Our Lord, he's the one that has rescued us. We serve a Savior who has redeemed us from the penalty of our sins at the price of his own blood. He has paid the once-for-all sacrifice for sins, offering up his body on the tree, thus securing an eternal redemption. Our trust is in him. Disciples of Christ, Jesus tells us, are not those who spend their days worrying about the cares of life. That's how the world lives. We trust in the God of the universe. Not just our maker, our creator, but a heavenly father. One who cares for us. One who loves us. He's not removed from us. He already knows all of our needs before we ever ask And out of his loving care adds to us all these things. He even delights to give to us his kingdom. And so we seek that kingdom. We seek the king who reigns over that kingdom. We give, we love others as God in Christ has first loved us. These are the hallmarks of a disciple's life, the life of faith. Jesus has been sketching this out for these fledgling disciples who are learning what it is to live as citizens of the kingdom of God, just as we continue to learn what it is to live after Christ. Well, to these characteristics, Jesus goes on to add that the people of God are those who live in light of Christ's return. The people of God are those who live in light of Christ's return, which brings up a fact for us that cannot be overlooked, which is that Christ will return. Jesus is going to come again. You remember how Jesus told his disciples right after the resurrection in the first chapter of the book of Acts when they asked him whether it would be at this time that he would now restore the kingdom of God to Israel. He said it was not for them to know the times or the seasons that the Father had fixed by his own authority. He said, I will send the Holy Spirit And when he comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It says, when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. He was gone. 
And while they were still gazing into the heavens, there were these two men in white robes, and they, they said to the disciples, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Just as their own two eyes had witnessed him go into heaven bodily, uh, physically, visibly, so also would he come again. And it's this return that we're thinking about today in our consideration of Christ's words to his disciples, particularly thinking, what does the second coming of Jesus Christ mean for us? What are its implications? If we have been saved from our sins, is there anything left for us to do other than just wait for his return? Peter, in his second epistle, talks about the fact of Christ's return and some of the errors and the false teaching that surrounds the doctrine of the end times, what we call in Christian theology eschatology. And it's not really our purpose today to delve into great detail uh, on those things, but he, he does ask a critical question there in that text. He says, first of all, yes, you must remember the coming of our Lord. You must remember that Jesus is going to return. You must remember the Lord, whatever it might look like to you, is not slow to fulfill his promise. Remember that the earth on which you stand is not going to remain in the way that you conceive of it today. Given the fact that all of this is true, what sort of people ought you to be? That's the question that Peter poses. That's the question we're dealing with today. Given that Christ is going to come again, what sort of people ought we to be? How should we then live? Jesus answers that question with a series of very brief parables in our text today, and they all circulate around a similar theme, that of someone waiting for men to return to the house. First, you have servants who are waiting for their master to come home. Second, you have a master standing guard lest a thief break in and steal. And then third, you have a manager, someone who has been entrusted with a household, the master's household, while he's away. They're all waiting for someone significant, someone important to return. So what is the teaching of this text? Well, Jesus starts by saying that we are to be people who live with a sense of expectancy. If you look at verse 38, uh, verse 35 rather, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. The master is gone He's at a wedding feast, and you don't know uh, when he is going to get back. So what do you do? Well, first, you stay dressed for action. You don't put your leisure wear on. Your attitude is not one of uh, nonchalance, uh, inactivity. You're dressed for action. Literally, it says, let your loins be girded. That idea comes from the feast of the Passover in Exodus chapter 12, where the Lord tells Israel that he's going to bring about their deliverance 
out of the hands of Egypt. Their redemption is drawing nigh, and they were to be ready. They were to eat the supper, if you remember, with their belts fastened, their sandals on their feet, uh, their staves were, be, were to be in their hands while they're eating. The folds of their garments were, be, were to be tucked into their, way, their waist and they were to eat in haste so that they were ready when it was time. And that's the background. That's the image that Jesus wants us to have in our minds as he issues this call to live with this sense of eager expectation for Christ's return. This is the paradigm you are to call to mind as you think about the Lord's return. Brothers and sisters, what is Jesus getting at, spiritually speaking? In other words, how do we put this into action? How do we appropriate uh, this parable to our lives today? How do we stay dressed for action? How do we keep our lamps burning in practical terms? Well, it all boils down to readiness. It all boils down to attentiveness. And as you can already sense, it's a, it, it starts with a frame of mind. It starts a particular, with a particular way of, of looking at things. You're alert. You're watchful. You're ready. And again, ready for what? You're ready for the return of Jesus Christ. The Lord of heaven and earth, the one who is to judge the living and the dead, you are ready for him. So one of the implications is that you're ready to meet the judge. Your soul is prepared to to meet the one who will sit on the throne. J.C. Ryle says, if a man cannot say from his soul, come Lord Jesus, there must be something wrong with that soul. There must be something wrong with that soul. If you're not in a place today where you're prepared to say, Maranatha, Lord, come, something is wrong. You must get your soul prepared. You're not dressed for action. You're not ready But you see here that the text also speaks of more than just a a one-time experience with the Lord. Notice that it says, stay dressed for action. So not only are our souls prepared in the sense that we have had an experience with God in Christ, uh, that we've done business with the Lord, that we have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting and resting in him as he is offered to us in the gospel. But we remain ready. We remain ready at all times. We live present tense with all of our devotion given over to the interests and the concerns of the master of his house. We're to be like men who are waiting for their master to come home so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Weddings in the ancient world, you may know, uh, were not like they are in our day and time. They often could stretch on for days on end so the servants wouldn't know when exactly their master was going to return. But this much was certain, he was going to return. He, He would come. 
he'd come back. So brothers and sisters, just like the master in this story, just like the master in this parable, our master has gone away for a while. And we don't know when he'll return. Concerning that day or hour, no one knows, but this much we know, that he will return. That he is going to come again. And we are to be like servants to whom the master has entrusted his estate. When he comes, it will be too late for you to get your house in order. It will be too late when he comes. But again, how do you do that? How do you live life with this kind of expectancy and sense of readiness? Let me read again to what Peter says from 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13. He says, Therefore, girding up the loins of your mind... And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the very same words, you see. It's the same words first spoken literally to Israel back in Egypt, echoed by Christ, now spoken again metaphorically by Peter to the church. Let the loins of your mind be girded up. It means prepare your mind for action. In this context, that it means something like this. Doggedly fixate your mental energy on the return of Jesus Christ, on all that will come to pass when he comes again. The possession of your inheritance. This perishable body putting on the imperishable. This mortal body putting on immortality, everlasting life in unabated glory, your faith being turned into sight, the consummation of all things, a new heavens and a new earth. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed when Jesus returns. You get ready and you stay ready for the return of Christ by centering your heart and mind on these things. That's what it means to gird up the loins of your mind. That's a picture of living in light of Christ's return. There's a clarity uh, to your pursuits. Your mind has been penetrated and, and permeated by the hope of his return so that you're not going to be caught unawares when he does come back as his servant or his bondservant or his slave. The word can be translated. You want to be found faithful when your master returns. You want the home that he's entrusted to your care to be in a state of affairs appropriate to the occasion and the glory of his return. And so you're ready to welcome him. You're awake. You're prepared to open the door at once when he knocks. There's a similar picture of this in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. Many of you will know the verse. Behold, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Brothers and sisters, that is not a call 
to the unconverted. That is not Jesus saying to the lost that he needs your permission to come into your heart. This is a gracious admonishment to a lukewarm church. Or to borrow Jesus' imagery here from our text, to a sleepy people. A people who aren't awake. They've gotten drowsy. Their lamps are, are just barely flickering. He says, if you're awake, if you hear my voice, if you open the door, what happens? You will know rich fellowship and feasting with me. You see the same thing in our passage today. To those who are expectant and alert, look at the promised blessing. Verse 37, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. Those who long for and wait with eager expectation the return of Christ will meet his gracious blessing. Now, what does that blessing entail? Here we find a striking turn of events, something that is so stupendous, it is, it is almost beyond words to, to lay a hold of what Jesus is describing here. It says that the master will dress himself for service. The master will. Jesus is saying that he will do, for those who have put their hope in him, for those who have set their hope fully on the grace that will be revealed at his return, that he will do what is unthinkable for any other master to do for his servants. He will be the one putting on the apron, if you will. He will be the one serving his people. It calls to mind John chapter 13. You remember where Jesus is there, and he's with the disciples in the upper room. It says that Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, and having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And what happened there? What expression of love do we see when supper was over? He got up, he laid aside his outer garments, he took a towel, and he tied it around his waist, and he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash his disciples' feet. He served them. You see the lowliness of our Lord. The lowliness of our Lord. The image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation takes up the basin and the towel and serves his people. It says he will have them recline at table. Dear ones, those who are waiting, those who are waiting on the master's return will have a place at the banqueting table of God, hosted by the Lamb himself. Blessed, the book of Revelation says, are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. Christ will come and serve us. It is just an astonishing statement. God of God, light of light, 
very God, a very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, the one in whom all the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell, he will come and he will serve us. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus says there, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and as the leader and the leader as one who serves. Now listen to this. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. That's our Savior. That's our Master and Lord. You see this theme of reversal uh, in the person and work of Jesus Christ and his ministry and his care for us, the master takes up the role of servant. His people, what happens with his people? There's a lifting up of the lowly. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit the seat of honor. No wonder the Bible describes Christians as those who have loved his appearing. Even before he comes, we are those who have loved his appearing because we know what blessedness it entails. We know what it will mean for us. We know that Christ, having been suffered, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. If that's your trust, if you have been found in him and your faith is in his finished work upon the cross, your sin has already been dealt with. It's already been dealt with. He's already borne it. And so you yearn for his return, the blessed hope. Now, We come to verse 38, and there is a slight modification of the parable we've just looked at. Now, we're keeping watch, not for a master, but a thief. It says, but know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So to this theme of expectancy is added the necessity of vigilance. Mark in your mind the necessity of vigilance. Jesus likens his return to that of a break-in by a thief. The stress in that image is on the unpredictability of his return. A thief doesn't swing by and, and say, hey, by the way, I'm going to swing by next Thursday and ransack the place. If that was the case, you, you wouldn't leave the house. You'd be on guard. You'd be ready there, ready to meet him. So also, you must be ready 
for the Son of Man. So if, if you look at verse 37, readiness is enjoined by way of encouragement. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. You look at verse 39, and the same idea is enjoined by way of warning. In the first scene, Christ's followers should rejoice in the prospect of his return. In the second, they should rightly fear being found unprepared when he comes back. The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, friends, to this very day, uh, there have been people who have been trying to argue contrary-wise to what the Word of God says here in this text, saying that they have figured out the day Christ will return or that he's already returned. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived, beloved. This was an error that many fell into from the earliest days following Christ's ascension. Paul had to write to the church in Thessalonica uh, uh, addressing this very thing, urging believers not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or by a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. He said, let no one deceive you in any way. So do not listen to the date setters. Don't listen to those saying Jesus has already come. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Christ's warning there prompts Peter to ask a question. He says, are you telling this parable for us? Or for all. He's looking for clarification. Who is this warning directed at? And you, you can understand why he would be alarmed there. Lord, we are your disciples. Do we really need to be worried about this kind of stuff? This whole coming like a thief idea. But the question at hand isn't so much does this apply to me? Should I bother tuning in to what Jesus is saying? But am I ready Am I dressed for action? And so Jesus casts the question back to Peter and to the rest. In verse 42, he says, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? In other words, who will receive the master's commendation when he comes? And by the way, brothers and sisters, one of the encouragements of this text is that you can be found ready when Jesus comes. You can be found ready at the coming of our Lord. And so to help Peter and us, Jesus introduces this third parable. These are all variations on a theme, as you can see here. How do I know whether I am ready for the return of Christ. Jesus says, put yourself in the shoes of a manager to whom the master has entrusted certain responsibilities within his household. The one ready for the master's return has been found faithful and wise in the discharge of his calling. He has taken the responsibilities that he has been entrusted with by the master seriously. 
And so living in light of Christ's return means living expectantly. It means remaining vigilant. Thirdly, it means stewarding well those gifts, callings, resources, opportunities, talents, responsibilities, and the like that the Lord has entrusted to you. Being found a faithful, wise manager. Here that the example is tied back to the welfare of others. He gives those under his care their portion of food at the proper time. He's busy about his master's business. So I would ask you today, what responsibilities has the Lord entrusted to you? What has the Lord set in front of you today for you to steward What is of eternal significance before your eyes? What souls has he put around you that need to hear of Christ and of his saving power? What church has he planted you in for you to serve in and minister to the brothers and sisters around you and to build up in love? What work has he given you to do for his glory Titus chapter 3 and verse 8 says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Or Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Are you walking in them? This is one of those signs you indeed belong to Christ, that you seek his kingdom and are devoted to his interests. You're taken up with the master's concerns, with those talents he's given you. How have you invested them? How are you stewarding them for the sake of the kingdom? How are you exercising the gifts that the Lord Jesus Christ has given you? What's one thing perhaps you could do this week to be a more faithful, wise steward of what God has given you? The Bible tells us that there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, that there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. The scripture also says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength which God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. In other words, take whatever talents God has given you, whatever things he has given you to steward, whatever gifts that you have received, take those things and use them with the kind of attitude that takes seriously who it is from and what it is for. Say to yourself, I want to steward maximally the grace given to me in order that in everything, God may be glorified 
through Jesus Christ. To him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Make that the cry of your heart. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Jesus illustrates the reward by saying that faithfulness in a little leads to this position where upon the master's return, one will be entrusted with the administration of the master's estate. He'll be entrusted with more. That's the blessing. That's the reward. There will be a day Jesus will come and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now we must reckon with what follows. What about the unfaithful steward? Let me direct your attention once again to verse 45. It says, But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Church, first I want you to notice where the point of deception lies for this servant. Do you see it? It is in thinking that the master is delayed. The master is delayed in coming. And so what does that mean in his mind? Well, there's no need to prepare. There's no need to get oneself ready. There will always be plenty of time. There will always be more time to get ready. It says literally that the servant says in his heart, my master is delayed and coming. Well, here again is one of those great points of deception and errors so frequently associated with the coming of Christ. If some chart times and seasons when Jesus will return, or they say that he's already returned, others convince themselves that they have all the time in the world to get ready, or they scoff at the promise of his return. You can see this in passages like 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring you up by sincere reminder, by way of remi- uh, I, am, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And Peter goes on to say there that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some count slowness, but is patient. He is patient toward you, not wishing 
that any of you should perish, but all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now what becomes of those who succumb to this line of thought that there is a delay in the master's coming? Well, you see it in the text. It leads to carelessness on their part. It leads to negligence of duties. It leads to the indulgence of the flesh. There's a lack of sobriety. So dear ones, I would say to you today that if your life is characterized by things of this nature, you are not ready. You are not ready for the return of Christ. And I would beseech you to heed the word of the Lord, which has been read in your hearing today. Go back to verse 35, get dressed and stay dressed for action. Be like men waiting for their master's return. Be assured Christ is going to return again, bringing his recompense with him to repay each one for what he has done. And that brings us to the conclusion of this passage where the Lord Jesus reminds us of the certainty of punishment. This language we have read of cutting to pieces is covenantal language. When you strike a covenant, uh, literally in the Old Testament, it's to cut a covenant. And that, an animal would be sacrificed and the two parties of the covenant would uh, pass between the pieces of the animal as if to say, if, if I am false to the words of this covenant, let what happened to this animal happen to me. And Jesus traces out three groups of unfaithful servants here in the text. First, there's the one in verse 45 who says, my master's delayed. What happens to him? He's put with the unfaithful. That's a very clear statement indicating he will not inherit eternal life. His manner of life testifies against any witness that he may have given with his lips that he belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, church, our, our salvation is not dependent on our righteousness, it's not dependent on our good works or our performance or our merit. But there is a manner of life that regeneration brings. There is a manner of life that accompanies being a new creation in Christ. In verse 47, there's the servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to that will. What happens to him? He will receive a severe beating. Verse 48 you find one who did not know and did what deserved the beating, he will receive a light beating. He may not have been privy to all that was required, but his ignorance doesn't excuse him. He's without excuse. The category I would particularly like to emphasize with us today is that second category, though. The servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will. The reason that I say that today is that the significance of a statement like this to a group of people like us can hardly be overstated. Those of us who have had the blessing to sit under the preaching of the gospel, some of us all of our lives, Many of you have been blessed 
to grow up in homes where you have seen parents where Christ is loved. You have had the gospel preached to you. Many of you have multiple copies of the scriptures at your disposal, while other people in other parts of the world sit in relative darkness. Dear ones, we know the master's will. We know his will. But are we doers of his word and not hearers only? Are we faithful stewards of what we have been given? To whom much is given, much will be required. Greater light means greater responsibility, Jesus says to his people. Well, then you say, I don't want to know anymore. Don't tell me anything more. No, no. It is of great advantage to know the divine will. It's the only way to be saved. It's the only place of blessing and life eternal. But let it be impressed upon our hearts that we have on us a special obligation to respond and to believe and to obey as those to whom his will has been revealed. God is just. He is a just God. And there will be a a proportionality to the judgment meted out on the last day. You remember how Jesus said that it would be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for those towns who had seen him minister. How much more so of us? So you hear the theme. Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. Wait expectantly. Remain alert and ready, for you know not when he will come. Pray God for the grace to be that faithful, prudent manager, one found working, one who knows and does the will of God. For there you will find the blessing. In part today, and when he comes, an unmitigated glory. Pleasures forevermore at his right hand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bless your name and we praise and thank you for the hope that we have in Christ that not only has death secured the forgiveness of our sins, but his life means the fullness of our redemption, the resurrection of our bodies, the hope of Christ's return. God, we rejoice that by faith we are your children now, and yet we know that what we will be has not yet appeared, that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So we pray that you would teach us to live in light of this glorious hope. Lord, we want to be ready. We ask, Lord, that you would grant we would be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. May you be glorified in us. In Jesus' name, amen.